Hey there, welcome to night school. We have a Saturday night night school, a night night school here. You know, it's worth saying the day of the week. I think it's always worth pointing out the day of the week when you feel like it. You know, the day of the week makes a difference. Makes a difference. But uh, what I'm thinking about right now is, uh, you know, the tendency to find a lesson in things. You know, sometimes there are situations in life where the lesson is obvious. But it's also easy easy to become the type of person who's always looking for a lesson. You know, it's like you're a you're a TV character who's always looking for the lesson in this situation. And, and while you should always be looking to learn, there isn't always a lesson. And I, I feel in doing this podcast, like maybe I come across as the sort of person who's always looking to... How can we learn from this? How can we... In what ways was this a lesson? I don't know if I come across that way or not. I feel that way. And that's enough for me. But a couple of years ago, it was uh, probably early mid, it was probably mid 2019. I'd been taking this girl out. We'd been uh, seeing each other a little bit. And, uh, you know, mostly just friendly. It was, it was, it was like, it, you know, it was mostly just going out as friends with a little bit of a romantic aspect to it. Not that I need to break it all down. Uh, but uh, anyway, we'd gone to this bonfire, and it was just a really wonderful night. Like, I took her to meet some other friends of mine, another friend of mine, and there was a party there, just a little one with a bonfire, and it was just the perfect, you know, spring night, and I was taking her home, and we were pretty high, you know, we were high on life, uh, is what I'm getting at, we were high, no, we were, we were, by, by high, I mean, we, our spirits were high. And uh, as we're driving down a dark street, I see a possum on the side of the road. And, you know, it's, it's green eyes flash, you know, as the headlights hit its eyes. And then it darted out into the road. And I, I slowed the car down. I tried to stop. You know, I tried to stop the car as quickly as I could. And it was one of those things where, like, as your wheels slow down, as your car slows down, but as the wheels themselves turn slower... Like, the wheel was on its last rotation before completely stopping, and it seemed like we missed it. It seemed like we missed that poor little possum, and all of a sudden, as the wheel's final rotation spun, there was just a a clunk, you know, I hit the possum, and then it ran away, but it was clearly, I mean, it, it was clearly bad. Like, it got away, but you could tell that this thing, this thing, this possum wasn't going to be living much longer. And it upset me that it was still alive. You know, and I've never, you know, I've never put something out of its misery before. I've never put an animal out of its misery. I mean, I mean, I've had to put cats down, you know, I've had to take them in, but I've never, like, had to... You know, outside of a uh, a veterinary office, and I didn't do it myself. Obviously, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't kill my cats. Uh, I've taken them in to be put down, as they say. But uh, you know, I've never actually like killed an animal to put it out of its misery. There was a situation where I was at like an ex girlfriend's house, and her roommate's cat brought in a rat, and the rat was just messed up. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm just gonna smash this rat. 
with a rock or a shovel. And uh, my girlfriend didn't let me at the time. And, you know, I understand why. I, you know, I get it. I get where it's like, even though this thing is alive and in pain, I get where it's, there's just kind of an ordeal. Uh, but I kind of regretted that I, that I wasn't able to. And it's it was something, too, I wanted to see if I could do it. You know, I wanted to see, too, like, and and again, like, I don't know if that's kind of a lesson. I, I want to see if I can kill a living creature. No, it wasn't even that angle. It was just sort of like, I just want to see if, if I can put a creature out of its misery, who clearly deserves to be put out of its misery, a cat, uh, a rat that's gotten, you know, basically shredded up by a, a cat. And so that crossed my mind when I hit this possum, and I, you know, I drove around the block, and I was like, I, I just want to see where it went to see if it's on the side of the road to see if I can see it and we went back around we could see that it was on the sidewalk and I didn't get a good look at it because I was driving but she said it was really bad she didn't describe it but you know it was in bad condition and I was like you know what I gotta do something you know and she was like no don't what are you gonna do like don't what are you gonna like throw a rock at it like smash it with a rock and I was just like, I don't know. I feel like I should kill it. I feel like I should, you know, it's it's maimed, horribly maimed. It's going to die anyway. And right now it's in horrible pain. And I understand this isn't the the happiest Saturday night episode. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to turn into, I'm going to turn on Saturday Night Live. Because this show, in addition to being the daily show, it's now also Saturday Night Live. I'm going to watch Saturday Night Live, and it's just somebody describing some episode where they hit a possum, and it survived, but was horribly maimed, and they, you know, had a dilemma. Now, but the girl I was with, she, she basically didn't, like, beg me, but she just said, she basically said, don't do it. She's like, I'll be really mad if you go kill it, and I was like, why? And she said, you know, it's going to be so scared of you when you walk up to it. Like, you're going to, it might be in pain, but if you approach that possum, it's you're going to put so much fear into it that that's going to be worse than whatever it's going through before it dies. And, you know, I feel like she put it better than that. Although that was basically her point, and I feel like she made a great point. And uh, I took her, I was taking her to go drop her off at her car. And, uh, but we were just bummed. We had been, our spirits were so high being at this bonfire. It was just, it was, it was a perfect spring night. And like after hitting that possum, we were just like, completely deflated, like nothing to say. It was just awkward. And, uh, when I dropped her off at her car too, she was like, don't go back there and kill it. <laughs> you know, like she told me like, don't cause and I, and she was psychic. Cause like, I was thinking that I was like, maybe after I drop her off, I'll go do it. Like, I don't know. This sounds almost pathological. Like I was obsessed with this, but I just felt like, you know, it's because of me and my, my big battle wagon that this creature got hurt in a horrible way. So I feel like I should just go finish the job and put it out of its misery. But no, but her argument about the fear that I, that I would put into it resonated with me. And as we were sitting there, because it was one of those things where, like, I, w- I was dropping her off at her car, and we were sitting in the parking lot for a minute, just, like, not sure what to say. Because we went from, you know, just pure joy to to this just dark sadness, you know. And uh, I tried to say something about, like, you know, some sort of lesson. I don't remember even what it was. I was like, you know, well... It's a it's a good reminder to keep an eye out. You know, it was something like that. 
I was just trying to fill the air, but I was like, you know, it's a good reminder to not hit animals with your car. You know, I was trying to say something to that effect. Like, well, I'll keep a better eye out for possums next time I'm driving home at night. Like some moral to the story. And she was just like, don't say anything. <laughs> she was just like, and this didn't, this didn't like end things. Like we're still friends and everything. Um, I think we still like kind of went out a little bit after that, but, uh, uh, she uh, was just like, don't try to find some moral or lesson to this. You know, which that itself ended up being the moral or lesson was just like, don't. I, 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 well, I guess there there was uh, there were a couple morals and lessons to it. One was like she actually made a convincing argument. Like I had never considered that the fear I would potentially put in a maimed animal by approaching it before killing it might be worse than the pain it's in. I had never considered that, so that was something I learned from that I'd never, I'd never honestly considered that. Like, obviously, I know animals are afraid, but I just never considered that part of the process. And then uh, the second part was, you know, maybe sometimes you don't need to come up with a lesson or moral in a situation. Sometimes something is just sad and brutal, like hitting an animal with your car. I don't know why I'm even thinking of that story. It crossed my mind though, because I was think—I guess I was thinking about you know when you try to find the lesson or you, when you try to learn from something. Uh, but then there are other situations where you know it's obvious. You know, it's obvious what you've learned, and uh, you know it makes me think of the Bible because you know you read the Bible if you've read the Bible. You read the Bible if you read the Bible, but if you've read the Bible, you know that there are parts where your eyes just kind of gloss over. You know, I'm on my second complete front-to-back read-through of it. Uh, I read it the first time in uh, October 2018. In, in the span of a month, I, I read the entire Bible obsessively. I was, I don't know, I was, it was, it was my last month in my house that I'd lived in for many years, and so I was gradually moving throughout the month. You know, I was gradually moving my things to a new place, and uh, I was, and then I was just spending my downtime reading the Bible. And I finished it on Halloween, and Halloween was also the last day that I officially had the keys to my house. So the house was completely empty by then, and I finished reading the Bible in a completely empty house, just sitting on the ground in this house where really I had spilled blood, sweat, and tears. You know this house I had lived in for seven and a half years where I'd just been through all kinds of just, you know, it was a lot went into that time living in that house. And uh, so I was reading the Bible in this empty house on Halloween night, sitting on the floor. Uh, and uh, But anyway, if you've read the Bible, you know that there are parts where you just tune out. Like, even though I'm I'm on my second time, like, there's things in the Old Testament where you're just like, I don't remember reading this before, and I don't even, re- I don't remember what I read last night. I don't know what I'm supposed to get out of this. But like anything, I just, I approach it as objectively as I can. Just like the New Age book that I'm also reading right now, the one by the, the w- woman who channels Prince Diana. Prince Diana. You heard of Princess Charles? Well, this is Prince Diana. But, uh, you know, same with that, where it's like, while there are some absurd claims, like, I'm just going to look at it as objectively as possible. And I don't even look at the Bible as, you know, any kind of absurd claims. I just try to read it as it is. 
But anyway, I guess like that gets into the lesson thing where it's like there are sometimes though where there's an undeniable lesson. And the first time I read the Bible, there's a part where Moses is very stressed out. You know, he, he's leading his tribe and he's uh, he's incredibly stressed out because he's micromanaging. Like what it explains is that Moses is trying to do everything himself. He's trying to settle every dispute within the tribe himself, and he spends all day doing it. He's stressed out and he's exhausted because he's trying to micromanage. And then his father-in-law Jethro visits, and he and he's basically saying, he says, like, look what you're doing to yourself. Like, you need to delegate authority. You need to choose some senior figures who you trust among the tribe to, to handle disputes and mediate disputes for you. And, uh, you know, that's just, it's, it's an obvious lesson. I mean, you read that and you go, oh, they're teaching you about micromanagement. Here's something that they tried to teach me at work trainings. Like, I've been to these generic work trainings where they send you off and they're like, we're going to teach you about management. We're going to teach you leadership skills. Always get to a meeting on time. If, if you schedule a meeting, always get to a meeting on time. That was the best advice I ever got at a work training. If you schedule a meeting, even if you're the boss, be at that meeting on time, earlier on time, and keep it within the parameters that you scheduled it in. Like if you say the meeting is going to be an hour, keep it an hour. And, I, you know, and you know what, whenever I've had bosses who don't do that, like who are late to their own meetings, especially habitually, like everybody's going to be late at some point to something, but like when someone's habitually late to their own meetings and when they go way beyond the scheduled amount of time, even if that person's your boss and it doesn't make a difference to you because you're on the clock anyway, I think it communicates something. I mean, I think it communicates just plain old leadership when that person is able to keep everything within the parameters of that meeting most of the time. So that was the most important thing I ever heard at a leadership meeting. But the other one is micromanagement. And that's a lesson that people have to learn over and over again in all kinds of different situations, not just professionally, but creatively. Like if you've ever been essentially in charge of a creative project, like, I'm not much of a musician, but I have played music with people, and it's it's easy to, if they're, if they're playing your music, it's very easy to want to tell them exactly what to do, and I think you have to do that up to a point, because, you know, we all like certain styles, we all like things done a certain way, uh, but at a certain point, you just have to let people do what they're going to do, you have to trust them, and part of that is having the right people. So micromanagement, it's this lesson that people have to learn over and over again, learning to trust people, learning to delegate. And that first time I read the Bible, I came across that, and I was just like, wow, this is the this is the Bible, and here it is, just in pretty simple terms, teaching you about micromanagement. And I think it is there to teach you. Well, you could read that story and just think, oh, you know, you could look at it as a dramatic angle, purely a dramatic angle where it's like Moses is stressed because he's in this leadership role and he's the sole leader and he has to do everything and he has to mediate all the disputes. And you could focus on it in, in just that way alone. But it's pretty obvious that it's teaching the reader 
not to do the same thing. It's teaching you that, oh, hey, if you're stressed out and you're trying to do everything yourself, you have to learn to delegate and trust other people to do it. Choose trusted people. You know, that's what it's teaching you. And so there it is. Like, no matter how many work trainings, I mean, you, there are these self-help seminars that teach that. And it's like the Bible was teaching that same story. And I'm not saying that that's a reason for other people not to teach it. It's like, oh, you went to a work seminar to learn about micromanagement and how not to do it. You ever heard of going to church? You know, I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying that it's right there. And I've never heard anybody say that. I've never once heard a single person tell anybody that. I'm sure somebody has. No doubt somebody has with all the people who have analyzed the Bible. I've just never heard somebody, when, when people talk about some of the practical advice, practical information that the Bible contains, which it does, and that's an example, just that you come across certain things. And like no matter how confusing some anecdote in the Old Testament might be, no matter you know how difficult it is to understand what it's trying to communicate, you do come across these passages where you're like, oh yeah, duh. You know, this is an obvious piece of information. It's trying to teach the reader. And uh, that's a big one, you know, micromanagement. And it's a lesson. You know, you read it and it's a lesson, you know, because while, you know, the Bible for me is something I read for spiritual insight, first and foremost, uh, to, uh, I don't know, I, I just, I read it with an open mind. I read it because I do have some sense of faith in the exact teachings of the Bible, not necessarily. Not necessarily, and and you know, I, I always talk about this very self-consciously because there is this sort of new Christianity that has developed. I don't know what else to call it. I, I just call it from my own point of reference, a new Christianity, because it's people who otherwise come from non-Christian backgrounds. I don't want to say secular because I've never identified myself as secular, even though that might very well describe me to someone else. You know, I was, I was never raised in a religious environment. I've never practiced a religion, and someone might say, because I've never been religious, nor was I raised in a religious environment that I'm just by default secular. But I do think that I've always had some some sense for something. Like, I've never been an atheist. And I have a tendency to think of secularity as atheism, which might not be right, but I have a tendency to think that way. So I've never, I'm just not comfortable saying I was ever truly secular. But there is this new Christianity that has developed from people who were not just secular, but people who might very well have been opposed to Christianity. Atheists among them. People who were very much into that new atheism, as it was called. I I think I call it new Christianity because it's in some ways kind of grown out and grown parallel to what was called by many people the new atheism. And there were a bunch of public figures associated with that. And while I like, you know, I like Christopher Hitchens. He was a rebel. I was a fan of Christopher Hitchens when I was younger. And, you know, for that matter, still am. Like, I don't have any, it's been a long time since I've listened to Christopher Hitchens. I don't know that it would be, uh, yeah, I don't know that I would be into it now, but I think I'll always respect someone like that. Ever since I saw him on Bill Maher when I was young and the crowd booed something he said 
and he just gave him the fi- the finger. I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, this guy's cool. Um, but he was one of those figures. He was part of that. And there's obviously the science guys. There's like the Richard Dawkins kind of guys. And I've never, never been that into them. But just atheism in general never attracted to me, uh, was attractive to me. But I never would have imagined myself being interested in Christianity, uh, in, at least in the way that I am now, even though I'm not a Christian. You know, I'm not a Christian, but I'm certainly interested in Christianity. And I, I, I have faith. Um, but uh, there is this new Christianity, and because it is a trend, my natural inclination is to reject it. And I was talking to Miles about this a couple nights ago, and like I think he referred to it as you know something to the effect of like hipster Christianity. I don't know. I don't know that that would be his his choice of words, but that was basically what he was getting at. And that's very much what this thing is in some cases. It's not this new Christianity isn't just that. It's not just what would be called hipsters. And I mean, that's a word I don't like, but we all know what it refers to. It's one of those things that you wouldn't be able to define. Like anybody who tries to say that this is a hipster, this is a hipster. And I God, speaking of work and and that kind of thing, you know, the reason why I don't talk much at jobs is because you end up having the same conversation over and over and it makes you feel crazy. Like, it's nice to be social. Sometimes having conversations makes the day go by faster. I'm not an asshole. But there are definitely things where you realize that, oh, we're going to, if we talk too much, we're going to have the same conversations over and over again. And that's actually worse for my mental health than just letting my mind wander in silence. And I, that, a great example of that is, is that a job where great people, I was working with great people, but one day somebody, and these were fairly normal people, like their interests were fairly normal. And one day someone was like, what is a hipster anyway? And somebody else was like, well, it's, I think it's like those people who collect records and they, uh, they, uh, they always like uh, things that nobody else likes. And, uh, you know, they, they basically came up with a pretty generic answer. And then somebody else weighed in and I just kept silent. You know, I think maybe I tried to say something just to participate, but it was, and it was just a small group of people. And then like less than a month later, the same person said, what is a hipster anyway? And then everybody like, as if they were on cue, they all said the same exact things. And I was just like, do people not remember what they were saying? Like, do they not remember that we had this exact same conversation and everybody weighed in in the exact same way? And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that'll make you feel crazy is when you have that Groundhog Day effect and nobody just halts it. Nobody says, oh, we covered this. But for me, like, when you hear the term hipster, like, I can't believe I'm talking about this, but it's just, it's one of those things where you just, you know it when you see it. There's a certain type of person and, you know, I guess the fashion kind of evolves. I don't even know if that's relevant anymore. I don't even know that it's relevant because what that referred to, the sort of, and it was it, it was always very general. And it was always, it did change a little bit. And, you know, while there are certain themes to those sorts of people, and I, I mean, I even had somebody say I was because I had like, like somebody I know, not the coworkers, but there was somebody I know in like a, a group of friends, there was an acquaintance who was like, well, you're kind of a, you know, you're a hipster because you, you have records and, you know, that kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, you know, I, and they didn't even mean it pejoratively. They didn't mean it as an insult. 
but they just kind of thought, oh, you know, and, and maybe I am, you know, maybe to somebody I am, but no, uh, it's just, it's just one of those things where you get a sense for it. It's a certain type of person who approaches things a certain way. And if you know what that is, you'll be able to identify it almost right away. Every time you meet someone like that, and I don't even know that it's relevant anymore. Like, uh, I was talking to Miles earlier tonight on the phone and he brought up, uh, Kamal or Harris's stepdaughter who I don't, you know, I don't even need to talk about her, but I will, I don't even need to, but I want to. And just that she's, she obviously has all the appearances of what somebody would have called a hipster girl years ago. But the reality is that's just, it's such a mainstream thing now. That sort of fashion, that sort of way of carrying yourself, it's just, it's become kind of a standard liberal thing. I mean, what used to be called hipsterism, (laughs) ism, uh, would now just be pretty much any ordinary liberal, I feel like. But without any kind of nuance, without any kind of like deeper interest, like somebody can just look that way, but the entirety of their interests are like Star Wars, and TV, you know what I mean? Like, that's like the entirety of what they're into. Uh, so they don't even have like the interests that would have been associated with, with words like that in the, in years past. But, but anyway, like, you know, I think that idea of like, there is a sort of hipster Christianity there. And, and I think one reason why that's a, one reason why that works or calling it that works is because a lot of it actually comes from that oppositional defiance of trying to do things that other people aren't doing. Because part of this thing, while there are certain people that just kind of found Christianity on their own, you know, and certain public figures have helped with that. There have been some public figures in the last few years that were like, hey, maybe you should consider religion. You know, I know Jordan Peterson is one of those where he definitely introduced a whole a whole group of young men, like nerdy young men who I think otherwise had rejected that kind of thing have become open to it in recent years in part because people are, people like Jordan Peterson are like, it's actually interesting to think about that kind of thing. And that's still a little more secular, but he nonetheless introduced people to thinking about it. Uh, but there is also a sort of person who uh, has spent their entire adult life and maybe going back to growing up as well, maybe their entire life, they've been surrounded by secular people. They might even have been surrounded by people who are outright opposed to Christianity. I mean, that was my story. My life is, I've just been surrounded by people who were opposed to Christianity. My interests are opposed to it. You know, coming from a background of, you know, heavy metal, experimental music, subversive art there wasn't a lot of room for christianity in that and while i was never drawn to satanism outright of course i have i own a lot of satanic records you know i i have enjoyed a little bit of that i've you know had an interest in that here and there uh still at the same time it was just you're surrounded by people and ideas that are in outright opposition to christianity and christianity is seen as the uh, the epitome of the mainstream. It's seen as, you know, and, and I wouldn't say I was ever opposed to it for that reason alone, but it's like it's seen as the epitome of generic mainstream America, and why would you be interested in that? 
And in fact, you have a lot of opportunity to be opposed to it. But when you're surrounded by people who are opposed to Christianity, if you're a rebel, you reach a point where you say, well, you know what? I'm going to rebel by getting interested in that. And then you might find that, hey, there's actually something in this. And I wouldn't say that that is what brought me to these ideas. I mean, I've been on a, for lack of a better word, a spiritual path for many years. And interests in the occult, in Eastern spirituality, those brought me around to just, hey, maybe I should look at even the Nike swoosh. Like at some point you go, you know, maybe maybe I'm just going to wear a pair of Nikes. Like I'm going to go, I, I want to go running. I want to become a, a long distance runner and I need a pair of running shoes. I'm just going to buy a pair of Nikes. I don't personally wear Nikes, but it's like that sort of logic where it's like, oh, you could try to find, oh, I'm going to get a new balance. I'm going to get this. So I'm going to get the Tigers, whatever they're called, whatever the different brands are. But it's like, it's kind of the same idea where it's like you might just reach a point where you're like, you know what, I'm just going to buy the pair of Adidas. I'm just going to buy the pair of Nikes. And you might find, hey, these are actually good running shoes. I don't know if Nikes are good running shoes. Never worn them. But uh, you might just reach that point where you're like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wear the Nikes. And you find that, hey, these actually fit me well. And I think it's that idea with Christianity. That's what, you know, some people, they might have they might have gotten into Christianity out of just pure oppositional defiance, trying to rebel against this world that they've uh, created for themselves where everybody hates Christianity. And society's become less Christian too. You know, Christianity has actually become more esoteric in recent years. In my lifetime, I've seen Christianity become much more esoteric as... You know, atheism and uh, agnosticism have become increasingly mainstream, especially in certain parts of the country, certainly the area I live in. You know, that in turn has made Christianity seem a little more obscure, a little more esoteric. And I, I wouldn't lie and say that that isn't attractive to me. Because what got me into spirituality alone was experience, strange experiences that I couldn't define or explain. And it made me feel a certain way and kind of made me tune into certain things in a certain way. Uh, but I was also interested in esotericism. Like, what is this? What is this trying to communicate? What is what even, you know, what are these symbols? And then I reached a point in esotericism where I, I was kind of like, you know what? Maybe I'll just try the pair of Nikes. Maybe I'll read the Bible. And so that's how I kind of got into it myself. It was, I think, a combination of cultural factors as well as just an inevitable road that, to go down, given my interests. And certain aspects of that resonated with me, which is why I'm interested in it. Which is why it's one dimension of my faith, not the whole of my faith. But it's one dimension of it for sure, and it's not an insignificant dimension at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, so it's like many people have been led to these ideas in different ways. And for me, it all comes down to faith. It all comes down to the idea of faith. 
because it doesn't matter. Because, I mean, even if somebody is an Orthodox Christian, even if they do say, hey, I am born again, I am a Christian, their interpretation or whoever they're listening to's interpretation of the same exact chapter, the same exact line of text might be different. So even within the orthodoxy, you're going to find people who have different views, especially when it comes to the more mystical aspects of Christianity, which are undeniable. You know, the word mysticism has a certain connotation, but it's like, I mean, what we're talking about is undeniably mystical. The Bible is filled with people having mystical mystical experiences and trying to communicate that. But as I was saying, it's also filled with practical information. You know, you do have a chapter where someone's father-in-law, where Moses' father-in-law Jethro just tells him, you know, you got to stop micromanaging. And the word micromanaging isn't in there because that's just a placeholder word like everything else. And uh, the result is the same. Delegate. Trust people to do things for you. So it's practical. And there's nothing really spiritual to take from that. There's nothing mystical to take from that. Even though Moses is having these constant... I mean, he's basically in a constant state of mysticism. He's receiving transmissions from God. Here his father-in-law comes and gives him this piece of information. And so if you, if you read the Bible as objectively as possible, those things jump out at you. Because you don't need to interpret them. You just kind of see it and you go, oh, I understand what it's trying to teach. I understand the lesson here. And it's one that we have to continually teach. We have to have work seminars to teach that same idea. I mean, I had a boss where I, there was a CEO of a company I worked for who was very involved in everything and was micromanaging to an extent that it was really dragging the entire company down. And people basically, fortunately, I didn't have to do it, but people who were in management basically sat him down and had to teach him how to delegate. And, and you know, and it was extremely difficult because this guy had total power in the company. But you can see where, and you can't fault him for it either because it was his company. But you can see where it's like this is a lesson that people who get into that position, people who get into any position of power, have to continually learn and live through. And, uh, you know, it's an experiential thing where even if you're taught that, you can't really know how to put it into practice until you're in a position where you have to delegate, where you can't micromanage. And it's in the Bible. He could have just told him, hey, have you ever read the Bible? It talks about this. But, um, you know, and, the, and the, but I was thinking about that, you know, because it's a practical lesson. It's one of those moments in the Bible where you go, oh, this is an obvious practical piece of information that everybody can learn from. And even if you yourself aren't in a leadership position, it'll, it helps you understand people in the leadership position. Because, I mean, that's an important thing about learning anything in any situation is that you don't have to be the person in the situation that it's describing. You can learn from that by saying, hey, I'm potentially going to come into contact or know somebody who is in that position. And maybe I can potentially help them. 
You know, it's hard if it's your boss to tell them, hey, you need to learn to delegate. But still, you might there might be somebody in your life who's in that position and you can tell them that. Or if they're doing that, you know what they're doing. Like if you have a boss who tells you, hey, I'm going to let you do this. And you feel all this pressure and you're like, it's, but it's not my job to do that. It's not my job to have that much control over this. Because that's a situation you can get into at work where your boss, I feel like this show's just gotten, if your boss tells you, you know, it's just become this weird like professional advice show, but, and who am I to be giving any professional advice to anybody? But, but still, it's like, that's a situation I've been in before where somebody, a boss says like, hey, I'm going to let you handle this. And while in some ways that's what you're always looking for because you don't like to have a boss constantly looking over your shoulder and getting into your business because that often does slow things down. They often do get in your way. It does stress you out. You know, when you are in a situation, though, where like they're they're finally like, hey, I'm going to give you control. Get in touch with with me in a month. I want to I want to know like how this is going in a month or whatever it is. You know, you can be like, well, hey, it's not my job. I'm not. Why are you giving me all the control? I'm just a nobody. Why are you giving me all this power all of a sudden? You can go, oh, hey, they're they're doing what Jethro told Moses to do. (laughs) You know, they're they're doing what every work seminar on leadership teaches you. So that's what I mean by like, you don't have to be the person in that situation. You don't have to be Moses to understand what's going on there and uh, apply it to your own life because then you go, oh, I understand what my boss is doing by giving me the authority over this. But then I was thinking about that and I I just thought of this tonight. I'd never actually considered it. I was talking to my buddy about, uh, you know, he sent me this Neville Goddard video who I don't know a lot about. You know, I do, I have enjoyed, like Neville Goddard's the source of the quote which I've shared on here I think like some months back, I may have shared it a couple times because I like it so much. But there's a quote, which is, faith is loyalty to unseen reality. That's a Neville Goddard quote, and I just love that. That When I talk about faith, above all else, I think that is the perfect description. Just a general faith to me. Faith is loyalty to unseen reality. I don't think I could ever come up with a better description of what faith is than that. Yeah, you can get into specifics. You can split it up and get into the nuances. But to me, faith is loyalty to unseen reality. Because that's what you have experiences with. That's what puts you on a road to these things. Like when I talk about never having truly been secular, I've always been aware of some kind of unseen reality. And I don't even know that I would have ever been able to put it in those terms when I was younger. But it's the reason why I never identified with atheism. No matter how rebellious I was, no matter how far I was from spirituality, because I wouldn't have called myself a spiritual person when I was younger, but I always had some sense for an unseen reality. And in that way, there always was some, you know, some little sliver of faith. Because if you're aware of some sort of unseen reality, that there is something going on that is larger or beyond this but also a part of this and this is a part of that thing that you can't see that reality that you can't see 
Well, you inevitably have some amount of faith, and you, you might not call it that. You might not know how to describe it. You might barely even be aware of it. But somewhere inside, you feel it. And that was me. You know, that was me for sure. Because I even think about drugs. You know, when I experimented with drugs as a teenager and that kind of thing, a large part of it was like, I just want to see what this is like. Maybe this will be fun. Like, drugs for me were never a... I never looked at them as like a way to feel good. You know, yeah, sometimes you want to like smoke pot and just sit around and eat or something like that. But for the most part, it was always based around doing something. Like when my friends and I would get stoned as teenagers, we would typically go on an adventure. We would typically do something. I can think of very few times, even when we had the opportunity, even when we were able, I can think of very few times where we just like sat around or did nothing or just sought some sort of pleasure or or were trying to escape something escape some feeling, you know, so to me, it was always like trying to experience something beyond this. So you can even look at drugs that way. And even though I would not credit drugs with, uh, you know, whatever I might describe as a spiritual epiphany, you know, whatever I might describe using terms like that, I wouldn't credit drugs. But I would say that my interest in drugs even back then, even as a kid, even though a large part of it was just normal experimentation, I would say that I, I was looking to access that thing that I could kind of sense. And did I access it? I, you know, I, I wouldn't really know what to say about that. I really wouldn't. I wouldn't say that I didn't, because I do think drugs can be used to facilitate something. I mean, obviously, hallucinogens play a big role for a lot of people. But I I think where that gets tricky is that people start to associate that drug, that material substance with that experience or sensation when those sensations can be experienced and are experienced without all the, oh my God, look at that thing that I've never seen before. Oh my God, it's moving. Oh my God, the trees are dancing. The trees are dancing. You know, it's like you can experience that thing without all those bells and whistles, without the frosting, you know, without the sauce. You know what I mean? Like you you can experience that sensation without needing it to be decorated, I guess is how I'd put it. But still, like my interest in drugs when I was younger did come from a place of wanting to explore the unseen and not that that not that I thought that that would help me see it but I thought that it might help me feel it and in that way I think I was on the right track even though that wasn't the route for me drugs were not going to be the route for me to get to that but I, I do think I wanted to feel that same thing that I'm describing now which is faith really it's faith. It's loyalty to unseen reality, as Neville Goddard so wonderfully said. And so my friend sent me Neville Goddard, and you know, just lately we've been exchanging a lot of material. He's digging into things that I've never checked out, or if I have, I've only given them a superficial glance, and I'm trying to, you know, send things his way as they as they come to me. And and so that's part of the conversation. But I was talking to him tonight, and it, it crossed my mind because. We were talking a little bit about the Bible and, and, you know, it crossed my mind where I'd never thought about the the Moses and Jethro story. 
about micromanagement. I never thought about it having anything except a practical purpose. I never thought about it as anything other than just that lesson of Jethro teaching his son-in-law how not to be stressed out and how to let other people do things for him to alleviate that stress and to ease his burden. But I started to think about that, and I was like, you know, the Bible is said to be the Word of God, and man was created in God's image. And so here's a story of a man who is learning how to delegate authority to other men out of pure necessity. Because, I mean, that's what Jethro says to Moses. He says something to the effect of, you know, this will destroy you. I don't, I don't remember what the actual quote is. It's been a while since I read it. Uh, but it's something to the effect of, like, if you keep doing this, it will destroy you. It's basically, it's this isn't sustainable. You're not going to be able to keep doing this. You're not going to be a leader if you don't start delegating some of your authority to other members of the tribe. And so if, if you know, the idea that's laid out earlier in the Bible, because, I mean, the thing about reading the Old Testament is it's very easy to, like, lose your continuity, you know, it'll explain something early on. It'll lay a foundation early on. And then, you know, you get through, you know, it's so long and there's so much information. And your brain does gloss over it. No matter how focused you are, your brain glosses over. Like so much of it washes over you. But you uh, you reach a point, though, well, and you reach a point where your your continuity is kind of lost and you're not really thinking about things in context. Like, you're not necessarily relating things back to the book of Genesis. And, you know, as as the Bible starts out, you know, in Genesis, it talks about, you know, man being created in God's image. And if that's the case, you know, Moses, as the leader of the tribe, well, he's the closest thing to God that that tribe has. If he's the leader He's not just a man created in God's image, but he's actually something of a God over that group of people. And if he too must delegate, what does that say about God? And it doesn't matter if you want to personify God. It doesn't matter if you want to think of God as, you know, just some sort of larger universal force. You know, and, and this is where like a real Christian would be like, don't just say God's a, a humanoid man and stick to it. But no, I want I want this to be, you know, I want the, I want to say this as I see it, and uh, it doesn't matter what you see God as. If you're following the idea that's laid out, the foundation that's been laid, you know, God is the leader; He is the supreme leader. And if that's the case, like, what does it say that? a leader who was created in his image is having to learn the lesson to delegate. Does that tell us that God himself delegates? Well, it seems like he does. It seems like God delegates leadership to man because man is created in his image. And in the same way that Moses is having to learn to delegate authority to other men, it seems like the larger information that's being communicated there, the more mystical piece of information, the spiritual piece of information that's in this very practical story, is that God himself delegates authority to man, which is an idea that is, you, re, you come across that throughout the entire Bible. 
You know, it, there's all this talk of kings and leaders that threads its way throughout the entire Bible. And uh, so with that in mind, that should be empowering. That should be empowering because the idea is that God has delegated authority to you as a man, whether you're a leader of the tribe, whether you're Moses or not. Because you know what, like everything, you look at the mafia, you know, one of my favorite subjects where it's like you have a boss, he delegates authority to the underboss who delegates authority to the captains who delegate authority to the soldiers who in fact aren't soldiers. Like even though the mafia uses the term soldier to refer to its members, under captains, they're not actually soldiers. They're actually more like little bosses themselves because they have crews of what are called associates under them. So you have this pyramid structure of delegation. And, you know, in a mafia context, if the boss were to try to do everything himself, well, he's going to go to jail. He's going to get killed, especially in the past when guys still got killed all the time. You know, it's like he's going to get into trouble. He's just not going to be able to do it. Like running an entire mafia organization himself as a boss, it's going to be difficult to do, especially if it's, a you know, in a large city. Because you do have situations where, like, historically in rural Sicily, you'd have a boss who basically handles the entire organization because most of them are his relatives and they live in a tiny village. But when it comes to a metropolitan mafia group, there's just not really any choice. It's like Jethro telling Moses, and I'm, I'm not trying to say Moses is a mafia boss here. I seem, <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to say that. Uh, but it, that idea is the same, where this mafia boss will basically destroy himself if he doesn't delegate, which is why every single mafia family has this structure, the exact same structure. It's why every company has this structure. It's why politics, for the most part, as convoluted as they are, do have some kind of structure. And the reason why we have these leadership structures is so that power and authority can be delegated. As above, so below. And if you look at the bigger picture, we have been given a certain amount of authority, which some people call free will. doesn't matter what you call it. You could call it leadership. Like, I don't enjoy free will discussions. I don't enjoy free will debates. Might as well be free willy. Oh, free will? You mean free willy? You know, might as well be. I don't, I have such little interest in, uh, you know, the debate of free will. I mean, you can't escape the idea of it, but I have such little interest in it because to me, it's just that, this is such a, it's such a distraction to focus on that set of words which again, you know, it's my favorite word is placeholder because so many things are placeholders for other things. I mean, you can call free will just leadership, authority, autonomy. We all have a certain amount of autonomy. We all have a certain amount of leadership within us because we are making decisions for ourselves. And the better you get at making decisions for yourself, chances are you will get better at making decisions for other people, not because you are forcing your will on them, but because, you know, when you communicate to people that you have control over yourself, 
that you are capable of leading yourself, people start to look to you for advice. If you're in a professional situation, you very well might get promoted. You might become a very real leader over people. You might become a leader of your friend group, and and every friend group has a leader. But, uh, you know, that's what happens when you communicate that you are capable of leading yourself. The result is often that you become a leader of other people, too. And if man is created in the image of God, who's seen as the total leader, the whole leader, well, then it makes sense, you know, in an as above, so below sort of way that there is sort of a hierarchy to life itself. Where we might form these pyramid hierarchy structures in society, whether it's the mafia, whether it's a a corporation, whether it's a group of friends who just has sort of a de facto leadership structure. You know, there, there is a... You know, it's sort of like, uh, well, I mean, it's something, the mafia is a subject I know a lot about, so I like to use that as an example, where there is, you know, historically, they don't have this anymore, they haven't had this since the early 1930s, but the mafia historically had what was called the boss of bosses, which is a term a lot of people have heard, but what that was, was... uh, the different mafia families throughout the country would elect one of those bosses to be the boss of bosses. So he was kind of like a higher level mediator. But he in turn had what was called the, the grand council. And because there was no way that the boss of bosses could actually run the entire country. And he, and it would be, it's not true that he was running things like, well, he had a high amount of authority and authority in the mafia or authority anywhere often descends into tyranny, the position was technically more of a mediator. He was there to mediate disputes between different mafia groups throughout the U.S. But he couldn't do it all alone. And he only had a certain amount of authority, too, where, you know, most mafia families around the U.S., all of them, all the, all the mafia families around the U.S. had their own boss, they had their own hierarchy, they had their own pyramid system, but then on top of all, then you combine all those pyramids, you put those, and, and those are all on the same level. All those pyramids are equal. Every pyramid is right next to each other, where no mafia family technically outranked another family. Some might be more powerful, some might be larger, but no mafia family outranked any other family. But then you had the boss of bosses above all of those pyramids, so he was the top of the pyramid above all of the other pyramids. And then he had the, the grand council in between him and uh, the pyramids. <laughs> Getting very esoteric here. The pyramids. You know, the pyramids were actually uh, mafia families that were turned into stone in Egypt. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's how it worked. That's how the structure was set up. And so you can see where the delegation existed even then. Where it's not just that you had the boss of bosses overseeing all of the bosses of individual 
mafia families, the pyramids that I'm referring to, it's that you also had a grand council who helped the boss of bosses mediate and handle disputes and handle issues throughout the country. So delegation just is there. It just delegation is it's almost like a uh, it's just a stream running through every structure. And uh, but then you know if you want to get further out about it, it's like then you you look at life itself, where each man fits into a hierarchy. You know, a man might be more or less the head of his family, even if he and his wife are equals. Even if we're not talking about some old-time patriarchal family, let's just say that a man has authority over his children. But he goes to work where he has a boss, and his boss has a boss. And so you oversee your family, but then somebody oversees you in a professional setting, and then somebody oversees them, and then there's a mayor, there's a, a, at the end of the day, you have a president. So there are all these kind of pyramids under pyramids under pyramids, and each one of those is represented by a different leader. And then you go further and further out, and you have people who are world leaders. You have people who run entire countries. But then there are bodies established, there are grand councils, established to then help basically run those countries, you know, where it's like just being a president of a country isn't enough. There has to be a a body, a UN. There's a structure even beyond that. And I don't know that the, the, I don't, things start to get confusing and complicated and convoluted from here out, but it's like, the idea of something larger than governing all of that seems like an inevitable conclusion. Even though you can't necessarily prove it, it seems like an inevitable conclusion that there is something more that governs everybody who governs. There is some kind of boss of bosses. But to somebody who's part of that structure, that thing might be incomprehensible. That boss of bosses, like to somebody who's, let's say, a mafia captain, he's technically under the boss of bosses, but he doesn't report directly to him. He has his own boss. And so there's actually several layers separating him from that boss of bosses. And so he might not even know that guy exists. And you see that with mafia informant reports. You see where mafia informants sometimes only know who the guy is directly above them. I mean, you'll come across mafia informants who say, so-and-so is the boss. And it turns out that guy was just a soldier. But to an associate of a mafia crime family, a guy who's a soldier, which is a made member, seems like a boss because he is that guy's boss. And that guy's boss, though, is insulated from the associates. So the associates aren't necessarily going to know. Often they do. But the associate isn't necessarily going to know who his boss's boss is. And he's not going to know who his boss's boss's boss is. So people are, are insulated from the hierarchy. And 
that's kind of how I feel as a human being. Well, I feel I have a certain amount of authority. And I know that certain people within uh, humankind, humankind, I know that certain people have authority over me. I know there's a president, whatever that means now. But I know there's a president. You know, you have people who, you know, you have parents. You know, you, you have bosses. If you go to school, you have a teacher. You know, you're, you're always going to have people who have a certain amount of power over you. But you're no, you don't necessarily know who has power over them. But you know there is somebody who does. You just don't necessarily think about it. But you kind of operate from a place of faith. Like when you think about, like, like let's say you're in college and you have a professor and they can make or break your grade. You know, whether you succeed or not depends on whether they think you have decent ideas, whether they think you did good work. They're going to grade your essay. They're going to grade your test, whatever it is. So that person has a lot of authority over you. But how often do you think about their boss? How often do you think about, like, the, the department head who your professor reports to? How often do you think about who the department head reports to? Who does the department head report to? They, do, they, do they report to the dean? You might be, you probably know who the dean is because they're typically kind of like a celebrity at whatever college you're going to. But still, you don't really think about the hierarchy. You don't really think about the fact that your professor has somebody above them. Like, if you really think about it, yeah, you know. You know there's a department head. But you kind of operate from this place of faith where there is kind of an unseen reality to that situation. And I feel it's cheesy to make that reference, but I, I feel that it's true, where there's this kind of unseen reality that you're kind of aware of, but how often do you think about it? When it comes to you being in class, or for that matter, your job, like how often do you think about your boss's boss? Or your boss's boss's boss? You know, how often do you actually think about that? But you know that that's a part of things. Like you know that your boss, like if you have a manager at a job, you know like on an intellectual level that that person is not the CEO. Like, if you work at, at, at uh, Arby's, if you work at Arby's, you know that, that your manager doesn't own Arby's. But for all practical purposes, all you're thinking about is that manager. As far as your job goes, as far as your daily life at that job goes, all you're thinking about is the Arby's manager, even though you know well that that person isn't the supreme leader of Arby's. They're not the CEO. The CEO isn't the person telling you uh, how much roast beef to put on uh, the, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the, the popular Arby's sandwich. It's the roast beef sandwich. We call we call it just a roast beef sandwich. No, but you're not thinking about that. Why? Because it's been delegated. Arby's has delegated. It has a structure, it has a power structure, and just like Jethro told Moses, power has been delegated at Arby's. And it's silly to say that, but it's true. Like power has been delegated at Arby's. It's, it's no different from a mafia family, <laughs> you know. It's no different from uh, 
the lesson Moses had to learn. Because they wouldn't be able to do that. You know, imagine if the CEO of Arby's tried to run every single, you know, branch of Arby's. Imagine if every single Arby's quote-unquote restaurant was being managed by the CEO would fall apart. So they've used delegation. And because of where you sit in the hierarchy, because you're the guy who makes the roast beef sandwiches, you only are thinking about the person directly above you because they're the person who can make or break your career. And just real quick, while I'm thinking of Arby's, there was a place that my mom took me to when I was a little kid called Rax. R-A-X. I don't understand what that word is, but it was alligator-themed. Like, they had these al- these plastic alligator-shaped cups that you could get. Like, they were reusable. And the kids would get drinks in these alligator cups. And you would get roast beef sandwiches. Like, what I remember of it, and I was a, a very young kid when my mom took me to Racks. There was one, there must have been one either in my town or the next town over. Because we didn't, we didn't go on road trips to Racks. But there was a Racks somewhere nearby. And what I remember about it is their menu was exactly like Arby's, where they gave you roast beef sandwiches. And even the bread was the same. Like, Arby's buns are very distinct, and I like Arby's. I don't go to fast food restaurants anymore, but if I had to choose, I would go to Arby's. (laughs) Uh, But uh, their menu was very much like Arby's. It was roast beef sandwiches, roast beef burgers, whatever, whatever it is. Um... And it was just, it was, it, it seems like speaking of esotericism, like Rax was always this esoteric thing in my brain because it went away and nobody ever talked about it again. And then in the age of the internet, I looked it up and it was like some regional fast food place. Like it wasn't even associated with Washington state yet. We had a Rax for a small window of time. And because I went to Rax a few times with my mom and I liked it. I like those roast beef uh, fast food joints, but because I went there, like for that brief window of time, I thought that Rax was just uh, always going to be there. And then it turns out it was some regional fast food place that was, they probably only had a store in Washington for a couple years in the late 1980s. And uh, it was just always weird to me, but yeah, Arby's got me thinking about Rax. If you've heard of Rax, please write in. Now, I want to say it was Southern. I want to say it was a Southern or Midwestern fast food restaurant, like a Bojangles or something. Like, we never had Bojangles. I've never even been to a Bojangles. I've never even seen a Bojangles. Uh, It's kind of like that, though, where you'll hear about certain regional fast food places, and I believe Rax was one of those, but they, they branched out to Washington State for a brief window of time, and I loved it. I loved the alligator cup. I loved the roast beef sandwiches. And then later when I discovered Arby's, I was like, this is just like Rax. I've been looking for a place like this, but I missed it. I, it wasn't the same as Rax because it didn't have this weird alligator theme. Anyway, though, um, delegation, I don't know. I was, I was talking about you know how there's this kind of unseen reality where you don't think about your boss's boss, but you know they're there. You don't think about your professor's boss. You don't think about who the department head of your college reports to. You know, you know at some point that there's a dean. You know, you know eventually it gets up to the dean. But does the dean report to somebody? 
seems like they do. If it's a state-funded college, that means the dean is subservient to someone. You know, and because we're humans and we're talking about human structures, we can map it out. You can eventually figure out it out, but uh, it would take a lot of work. Yet you just kind of operate where you're at. And you just you think of the person who has authority over you right then and there. But they don't have total authority. I mean, you have a certain amount of leadership over yourself. And if you make the right decisions, maybe you'll end up being a professor. Maybe you'll be a department head. Maybe you'll be the manager at Racks. Maybe you'll be a dean. Maybe you'll be the CEO of Arby's. And you'll have somebody over you. And it just goes upward from there. But I guess with that idea of like you, there's just kind of, it's just kind of implied in your in your mind that there, oh yeah, of course there's somebody above the person who's above me. But how often do you really think about it? You probably don't because it doesn't, it's not practical. It's not really practical. But you think about how, you know, eventually you can trace the delegation back to one person. Somewhere there's a person who has, who's at the top of the pyramid. But then you wonder if, like, if there's somebody who's even higher up than that. And that's where people get into, like, New World Order conspiracies, where it's like there's a a group of elites who are at the absolute top. But then even among those elites, there might be somebody who's even more elite. And I feel like the path that you trace this just eventually leads back to some sort of supreme intelligence, some sort of creator, which is why that idea is so popular. And even if it's not one creator, people eventually trace that idea back to demigods, a group of gods. Either way, people eventually trace the idea of leadership back to things they can't see and can't prove for that matter. But a lot of different people in a lot of different places at a lot of different times have all been led to that belief. And I I say led very self-consciously, but something has led them there. Some sort of thought has led them to the idea that there is something even higher up That there is a a God, a group of gods. There's a boss of bosses. And even though I, I have no way of proving to somebody that there is a God or there's a group of gods, and I have no interest in proving that to anybody, and someone might think I'm making some sort of great logical leap by being like, well, because the manager of Arby's or Racks, excuse me, the manager of Racks, reports to somebody, but you don't know who that is. You don't know who the regional manager of Rax is. And you don't know who the regional manager's boss is. You probably don't even know who the CEO of Rax is. I don't. I don't even know if Rax is still around, even in the South or Midwest or wherever it's, it's more common. But, you know, you still know somebody is in that position. 
And so somebody would say it's taking a huge logical leap to go from like the manager of Arby's has a boss, therefore there's a God, (laughs) you know, I can see where somebody sees that. And that's not the point I'm even trying to make. I'm just saying that you have a degree of faith in an unseen reality that involves a leader who you can't name, whose position you don't know, you know, whose actual relationship to the manager of racks that you do know, you know, you don't actually know what kind of interaction they have. You don't know anything, but you have a degree of faith that that's there, but you don't think about it. You just kind of sense it. You know that if you went into racks and uh, you ordered a, a, a large roast beef with one of them alligator cups, like if you looked over and, uh, you know, the person putting together your sandwich, spitting your sandwich, you'd report that to the manager. But if the manager said, no, they didn't, they didn't spit in it. And then pissed in your alligator cup in front of you. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to report them to their boss. You're going to find a phone number. You're going to find a way to get a hold of corporate. So in that moment, you suddenly are aware of the fact that that Arby's manager, Rack, excuse me, Rack's manager, has a boss. You're never thinking about it while you're there. When everything's going fine and you're ordering your sandwich, you know there's a manager there. You know the employees are making your sandwich, and that's all you need to know. But when something goes wrong, you're thinking, I'm going to call corporate headquarters and report this scumbag manager who pissed in my alligator cup. So suddenly that faith, it has a very, uh, it's very practical all of a sudden. And, uh, you know, and then uh, you might need to trace that up. What if that person doesn't give you satisfaction? So you just keep, you, you can, you know, climb that up further and further. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not trying to say because there's a, a food chain, because there's a pyramid structure to everything, and you can keep going higher and higher and find so-and-so's boss and so-and-so's boss, and you can keep finding somebody else's boss. Like, I'm not saying that that should lead you to conclude there has to be a God. Only that it's led a lot of people to believe that. And they haven't necessarily followed that logic But they've still nonetheless come to that conclusion. And they believe in those gods through a similar sort of process where they don't see them. They don't know them. They might have a name for them. They often, they always do. I mean, they often do. Um, But they nonetheless believe in them in the same way that you believe the Rax manager has a boss who has a boss who has a boss. And uh, it seems like when we create these human structures, these human systems, that's always the case. Very rarely is there a true horizontal hierarchy. And in fact, anytime someone tries to set that up, someone becomes a de facto leader. I mean, I worked at a place where they tried to do that, where like they tried to be like, everybody here is equal. 
including the big boss. Like, like the big boss tried to set it up this way, where he was like, we're all equals here, and you can come talk to me the same way you would anybody else. That lasted all of 10 minutes, you know, where it's like, it's not sustainable. Because at the end of the day, that guy had more power than other people. And when there was like a disagreement, he had more weight, he had more authority, and it ends up being phony. So you might as well just kind of stick to the way things are, which is that we always kind of set that system up. You know, we always kind of apply that system, and it creates itself even when we don't want it. Like, I think about my group of friends growing up, and it was like there was me, my best friend, and kind of a rotating cast of other dudes from the time we were little kids through the time we graduated high school. And and some of the other friends rotated in and out. Some people kind of stayed there. But my best friend was always the leader. And I didn't think of him as, like, my boss. Like, he was my best friend, and we were peers. But when it came to the social dynamics of our group... No matter who the other people were, he was always the final word. Like if we were standing around a parking lot trying to decide, what are we going to do tonight? And everybody knows that at the end of the night, we're going to just migrate to another grocery store parking lot. Oh, we're at this grocery store parking lot. Somebody's going to call us and say, oh, we're hanging out at this other grocery store parking lot. So we're going to go meet them there as if that's something to do. But we're high school kids, and what we do is hang out in grocery store parking lots, which I love. To me, like, I love just a bunch of people hanging around in a circle in a grocery store parking lot. That, to me, I miss that, and I wish that adults did that, because I miss it. Go hang out in the Racks parking lot. No, but, you know, even though most of our social activity by the time we were teenagers was like, we're hanging out, we're aimlessly hanging out in this parking lot, What are we going to do? Let's go to this other parking lot. My best friend, people would just defer to him. Like, even if somebody else suggested the idea, they would kind of wait for him to nod his approval. And if he wasn't into the idea, if he was like, oh, you want to go hang out at uh, the Safeway parking lot? You know, we're hanging out at the QFC parking lot. I don't want to go anywhere. People would go, yeah, you know, that's actually a good point. (laughs) You know, and the only thing that made that a good point was the fact that he was sort of this de facto leader. And it's not like we were a gang. Like, even though I think we kind of thought of ourselves like that, it's not like we actually were some sort of gang where we're like, this guy's our leader. And I myself didn't like that idea at all because I saw myself as a peer. But I also knew that he had more influence over other people. I knew that he had more charisma. So at the end of the day, I'm going to end up following him, too. Not because I'm a follower, but because his word carries more weight when it comes to what our group of friends is going to do on a given night. And it was interesting to see that play out. And not to really know it at the time, but to, again, feel it. To kind of sense it. And it's utterly fascinating to look back on that. Especially because he and I have stayed friends our entire lives. And uh, he moved here later on as, as an adult. He moved to Olympia for a few years. And we didn't have a group of friends here. Like while we each had friends, we had other friends, we didn't have that same dynamic where we had like this tight gang of, uh, of friends who always hung out together. So as a result, we just hung out as peers like we always did. Like when he and I hung out as kids, we were always just on an equal playing field. But it was interesting to know him then where he did have these kind of sycophants 
And some of those were like good. And, and to his credit, like even his sycophants were kind of independent minded dudes in their own right, but they just deferred to him. Um, and, and then to know him as an adult where there wasn't a group of people who did that was interesting too, to see those two different sides of things. But it was like, there was no question. And like the parents knew it, like the parents knew if we were up to trouble or something, like my mom would know to be like, Oh, did, uh, did Nick get you to do that? You know, and not because, and she loved him, you know, it's not like she had any, uh, she didn't think of him as a bad kid who was causing trouble, but the parents just kind of knew that, you know, if we all did something, he was probably, he probably gave his approval, you know what I mean? So it's just sort of a funny thing, uh, how that created itself, even when it didn't need to, like, even when there was no, there was nothing professional, there was nothing organizational, you know, and I mean, it's with sports teams as well. You can see this with sports teams where it's like, if you ever played football, you have a team captain. You have a few team captains. Why? You already have coaches. There's already multiple coaches. And guess what? There's a head coach and there's an offensive coordinator and there's a defensive coordinator and then there's other assistant coaches. But there's a head coach. But then even though you have a head coach and these coordinators and assistant coaches, you then have team captains. So again, you have this mafia structure, and it's it's not a mafia structure because you see it everywhere, but it's just interesting how even on a kid's football team, it's seen as empowering for the coaches to say, hey, Johnny, Joe... And Stevie have really proven themselves as leaders, so we're going to make them team captains. So they're going to be leaders, but they're not the coaches. So why do they exist? Nobody questions it, though. Like, no boy on any football team I ever had, and every single team had a captain. Every single team had multiple captains. Why did nobody ever question it? Why did it seem and feel so natural and intuitive, even though we already had these authoritative figures who are responsible for us and who we are responsible to, why do they still choose members of our, you know, why do they still choose members of the team to then be these sort of in-between leaders? You know, because it's just how it works. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't even have an explanation for it. But it's there. And it goes back to what I said earlier, where it's the more leadership you show over yourself, the more likely you're going to be put in an actual position of leadership over somebody else. Whether it's de facto, like my childhood friend Nick, who everybody in our group of friends deferred to. They wanted his consent if they were going to almost do anything. You know, and not because they were weak-willed. It was just he just had that kind of power over these dudes we hung out with. And like I said, it was a rotating cast of them. It wasn't like it was the same exact people our entire childhoods from like second grade to 12th grade. That was 10 years. You know, and there was a rotating cast of kids. 
and they they came into our group of friends at different times for different reasons, but yet the majority of them kind of fell in line. And not because they were told, they just did. There's a de facto leadership there. And then with the football team as well, where it's like the like I was saying, like there are people who show that they can lead themselves. They operate within the parameters of free will, whatever you want to call it, and they do so well, so therefore they end up in a position. In this case, it was called a team captain. They showed the coaches that they could lead themselves and maybe had a certain charisma, and the coaches said, you're a team captain. And guess what? The NFL has that too. This isn't something they do to kids. This isn't, this isn't something they do on youth sports teams just as some sort of novelty to teach kids about leadership. It's something that the NFL does. The NFL has team captains, even though the NFL has even more coaches. The NFL has even more assistant coaches. But there's something about giving players a certain amount of authority within the team. And uh, and then you look at coaches, and it's like, well, you know, who put the coach there? Somebody hired the coach. There's an administrator. You know, there's an athletic director of the school district. And he hired the coach. When you're a kid on a football team, are you ever thinking about the athletic director of your school district? No, you're just thinking about your coach. You're thinking about your team captains. Yet you know there is somebody, like deep down, if you, or if somebody were to ask you, if somebody were to say, oh, hey, like, did your coach just appoint himself? Did your coach just walk in? Is he a guy who just walked in off the street and said, hey, boys, I'm going to coach your team? Of course not. He was hired by somebody and most people are smart enough to know that, but it doesn't matter to them while they're playing football on that team, unless there's a problem, unless the coach does something bad, unless the coach, like, hits a kid. Then you report him to his boss. But uh, for the most part, you just kind of operate under the assumption that your coach is there, he's the authority, but you know there's some shadowy figure somewhere who's, who's the athletic director. And uh, this same, the same idea, that same faith has lent itself to entire civilizations believing in gods, believing in spirits, while still seeing themselves as autonomous beings who make decisions underneath other autonomous beings who, through their leadership skills or, you know, I mean, sometimes it's, I mean, I'm not saying it's always merit-based. I'm not saying someone who's in a leadership position is always somebody who has um, proven themselves as a leader. I mean, there's obviously nepotism, there's corruption. But when there is nepotism and corruption, there's still a need to explain it. 
And that gets into the explanation versus description thing that I always talk about on here, where if somebody is actually in a position of power because they deserve it, because they actually have leadership skills, all you need to do is describe their qualities. Whereas when someone gets appointed to a position because of nepotism, corruption, because they're friends with somebody, because they paid somebody, you'll almost always see an explanation. You almost always see some sort of justification. So it's interesting how that works. It's a great example of explanation versus description. Where there's no need to explain if somebody is where they ought to be. But if they aren't where they ought to be, you know, you'll see somebody explain it. They'll come up with an explanation. Whereas, you know... If they're meant to be there, there's no explanation needed because the fact alone will speak for itself. But yeah, I think, you know, part of having faith in some sort of uh, larger spiritual entity is not entirely unlike that sort of knowledge that you have, no matter what your position is, the knowledge that your boss has a boss who has a boss. And if you're a Christian or you even just relate to Christian scripture at all, the idea that God is, or that man is a reflection of God, that man was created in God's image, tells you that God is a leader because we ourselves are leaders. And we lead ourselves, sometimes poorly, because that's something that's important to point out, where you know, we are always leaders over ourselves. It's like what I say about like going and raiding your pantry, where like you don't think of that as a decision. You don't think of that as discipline. Your eyes gloss over. Let's say you're stoned and you're just, you have the munchies and you just keep getting up and snacking. You're still making a decision. You're still leading yourself to the pantry. You're just making a poor decision. It's like when you decide to, you know, cheat on your wife or just do anything like that. It's like you're still making a decision to do that. You might not even realize it. You might just be following some sort of impulse. But at the, at the end of the day, you do have a certain degree of autonomy. No matter how messed up you are, you have a certain amount of autonomy. And you are making a leadership decision to betray your wife and go with another woman. The thing is, it's poor leadership. So it's not that it's not leadership, it's that it's poor leadership. So we are always leaders of, of our own lives. You know, we are always making decisions, we are always leading ourselves to do something, even if we're not thinking about it. But realizing that even your poor decisions are a byproduct of a decision-making process and therefore poor leadership, I think is actually an empowering realization. Even if it involves the pain of realizing that, oh, hey, I've been stupid. I've been doing something stupid. Like, even if there is a certain amount of pain to that realization of being like, I have had control. I've just been behaving poorly. I've been leading myself poorly. Just realizing that you're leading yourself to make bad decisions 
can empower you to realize you're simply making decisions, therefore you can make good decisions. That's an important realization, because some people just feel like things are happening to them, and they don't realize that they are leading themselves into certain situations all the time. But, uh, you know, if you do believe in a sort of as-above-so-below principle, if you do believe that we are in some way a reflection of some higher power, even if we can't comprehend it, even if it isn't shaped like us, even if it doesn't have a material form that we can look at, even if it isn't a, a giant human being sitting on a chair made of clouds, there's still this idea that there's a larger unseen entity. And, an, and calling it an entity even seems like I'm turning it into something that we can understand and relate to. But, you know, if you yourself are a leader, which I think is undeniable, I think it's undeniable to see yourself as a leader. It's undeniable that we as individuals are leaders. Even if we're poor leaders, we are still leaders. You know, in the same way that somebody who is an actual boss can be a bad boss. You know, you're still the boss of yourself, even if you're a bad boss of yourself. But if you do believe in that idea of autonomy, free will, leadership over yourself, it seems inevitable that you would think that there is a similar process playing out at a larger level that you can't see. And in this case, you can't map it out in a human structure. You can't, you can't look at like who your boss's boss is. You can't find the, the corporate phone number to get a hold of the regional manager so that you can report the manager of racks for pissing in your alligator cup. You, know, you can't map it out quite that easily. There's no paper trail. But it's hard to shake the feeling that there isn't something. And this is where faith really kicks in. Because faith itself is, for one, in my experience, just that, experiential. But it's also a form of knowledge, too. You know, I know Carl Jung said, uh, he was asked, you know, do you believe in God? And he was like, I don't believe in God, I know God. And, you know, I know that some, you know, some branches of Orthodox Christianity sort of reject the idea of experiential knowledge. They reject the idea of gnosis and say that you should simply read the scripture, take it literally, and believe But for me personally, knowledge is much more relevant. Gnosis is much more relevant. Experience is what matters to me. 
But how do you convince somebody that your experience, your knowledge is somehow reality? Well, you don't have to. You don't have to convince anybody that your loyalty to unseen reality is a fact. Because to feel it is enough of a fact. And if you keep yourself well-balanced and you keep yourself in check, nobody can accuse you of being crazy. And if they do, well, they're executing poor leadership. Because they're not going to help you, even if you were crazy. Like, even if I was crazy, telling me I'm crazy isn't going to help me. You know, so when it, when somebody thinks that you're out there or you're, uh, you know, you have a wild imagination, all you can do is let it go. And you can help yourself, you can execute poor leadership in your own life by feeling people out before you talk to them about this stuff. You know, it's, it's the reason why you have confidants. I mean, there, I have friends who have spiritual beliefs and have had spiritual experiences, close friends, but I still wouldn't talk to them about God. I still wouldn't use the word faith. I mean, I'm not afraid to use it if they're my close friend, but it's like I wouldn't go on to them about it. Whereas I do have friends who I would, like my friend who I was talking to earlier. Uh, I'm more than comfortable talking this way with him, and our conversations often go this way, and it's important to have confidants. It's, it's important to have different types of confidants. Uh, but, uh, you know, with, uh, but, uh, with, uh, but, uh, with, uh, but with these ideas, you know, you always run a risk by talking about them. Maybe you're explaining yourself poorly. Maybe you're describing yourself poorly. It doesn't have to be an explanation. You know, maybe, uh, maybe it's impossible to truly explain these things. Maybe you will inevitably reach a point where no matter how good you think your analogy is, you reach a point where you make a big leap in logic. Because that's what faith is, too. While it's loyalty to unseen reality, as Neville Goddard said, it's also inevitably a leap in logic. And John Butler, who I really like, the old sage, a very not a very well-known figure, but he's an old guy who has a show where he talks about... Uh, he talks in very straightforward terms about spirituality, but he said something on a show recently. I'm trying to think of exactly how he phrased it. He said, uh, he said this exactly. This is exactly what he said. He said, human knowledge is spiritual ignorance. And he's not a mean-spirited guy. But sometimes people write him letters, and he, sometimes he can he'll dismiss what they're asking for just outright like I think I talked about it a while back where a woman wrote him a letter asking him basically like she had become this new Christian it sounds like and she was basically trying to enforce this on her boyfriend who wasn't a Christian and she was being very self-righteous about it and I'd never seen John Butler get this way but he was pretty scathing at least as far as he's concerned for a gentle old sage he was pretty scathing because, you know, whatever this woman was looking for from him, whatever kind of advice, like, I don't know what she was looking for, but she sounded very self-righteous and just the idea that, you know, she had apparently found God 
yet she was trying to force her boyfriend, who it sounds like had been with her before this faith, you know, that she developed, but she was trying to basically enforce this set of rules on him, which is what people try to do whenever they learn something new. I mean, you look at what happens with the modern liberalism, if you even want to call it that, where it's like somebody learns a new rule. Oh, this thing is offensive now. This thing is racist now. This thing is sexist now. Here's a new rule that I can enforce like a hall monitor. And I'm going to do it in a way that doesn't actually teach anybody anything. It doesn't actually give anybody any room to learn, assuming what I'm telling them is actually the truth. But I'm going to use it as a way to enforce a new set of rules because we as human beings love new sets of rules because that means we have something fresh to enforce and to force on other people. And you can easily do that with religion. I mean, there's a reason why people draw a lot of parallels between modern leftism and organized religion because it involves enforcing and forcing what you believe to be the greater good. Except the greater good involves all of these hyper-specific little facts. And if you don't agree with those facts, or if you just simply don't agree with the way somebody is enforcing or forcing those facts, you know, you become, uh, you know, the blasphemer. And you either need to be punished or excommunicated or, you know, whatever it is. You know, so you can easily do that with this stuff, of course. Which is why people always use this as the comparison. Which is why, oh, you're acting religious. You're acting cult-like. But people like rules because they can enforce, enforce them. But yeah, John Butler... You know, I'd never seen him be this harsh to somebody, but you could tell this letter that, that he received struck a nerve with him because it, it was so, there was so much hubris to it. You know, just the idea that it's like, I've learned something new that I think is right. How can I force it on my boyfriend? And I think his quote from a more recent episode, which was human knowledge, his spiritual ignorance fits in perfectly there. Because this woman had come to learn something. She gained this new knowledge. But she was coming from a place of deep spiritual ignorance and not getting what she wanted. You know, because at the end of the day, we want harmony with other people. And I do a lot to disrupt that. You know, I do a lot to disrupt harmony with other people. But I don't know that I have a choice as far as the way that I do it. But I think we all end up feeling that way, so it's good to keep yourself in check. But yeah, human knowledge is spiritual ignorance. Does that mean human knowledge is terrible? No. Of course not. But you shouldn't mistake human knowledge for spiritual knowledge. Because that is something I will say, that... Even though I'm interested in the Bible, and I was talking about that earlier, I don't feel that the Bible itself gave me that experiential knowledge, that gnosis that is the foundation for my faith. 
But in reading the Bible, that foundation is enhanced or at least made more interesting, if nothing else. My faith is made more interesting to me as a person by the fact that I can read about faith in the Bible and that I can come in contact with certain ideas, that I can read about the story of Moses being visited by his father-in-law Jethro who teaches him about micromanagement and how to delegate and the necessity of delegation and that even though it isn't stated anywhere in that passage you can extrapolate that out and say well hey if Moses is a leader who needs to delegate and it really does seem that he has to if he wants to make it if he wants to continue to be a leader And in turn, in doing that, he's going to create other leaders underneath him. He's going to create that pyramid structure out of necessity. And we see where it is very much a necessity throughout mankind, throughout history. But if we're going to read that passage, we then have to relate that to the entity that Moses is a reflection of, which is God, which is a leader, which is... Maybe the greatest delegator of all. And maybe that's the way you should think about God. Maybe that's an easier way to think about God than to think about God as this, you know, single individual sitting on a chair made of clouds with a white beard and a robe. Maybe rather than, and, and you know, acting like some king or emperor of the sky, you know, whatever it is people say. You know, rather than think of him as that, maybe it's better to think of God as a supreme delegator. Because in addition to, you know, perhaps creating everything, doesn't it seem that he has delegated authority upon everything, especially our species, especially man? Doesn't it seem that whatever it was that created all of this, whether you think it was just by chance even, something delegated authority to us. And isn't the simple fact that this exists at all a sign of some greater authority? And it doesn't matter how you describe it. It doesn't matter how you envision it. I don't know how to even do that. How do you do that? If you know how to do that, you know, I guess tell me, but I don't really care. Because at the end of the day, I have to experience that knowledge myself to understand it. But the simple fact of life itself seems to suggest that there is some kind of authority. Something that led all of this. To, uh, to come to be. You know, I'm just trying to find my words here, but um, I feel like that you, this gets into territory where you just have to be so conscious of every word you say because it can come across so many different ways. But yeah, I think that's a better way to think of God if you need to. If you don't need to think of God, I don't need to tell you anything. Preach what you need. Live the life you want to live. See the world the way you want to see it. I stopped seeing the world the way that I wanted to see it. Because the way that I wanted to see the world was 
a way where I was trying to invent endless placeholders. Let me come up with a new word for this thing that everybody's already familiar with. Let me come up with my own stamp to put on this. Let me make it my own. Let me rebrand this my way. And sometimes you have to do that. I think that's actually how you gain experiential knowledge is because you try to do things your own way and to some degree you might succeed, but you realize in succeeding that your way wasn't different than everybody else's way all along. Which is why I've always used the example on this show of like, I feel like I was off in the weeds in the jungle, like hacking away with a machete going, I'm making my own path. And I was coming across other people, which was great, because I was like, oh, you're making your own path too. And then I just, I just kept hacking away in the, in the jungle with my awesome machete, my beautiful machete. I was so proud of that machete. It's my machete. And then suddenly I, I hacked away at a last little bit of brush, and I suddenly found myself back on the main trail that tons of people were already on that had already been hacked away. And I realized that I was hacking away at that brush and I was actually making a semicircle back to the main path that I had strayed from at some undetermined point early on in my life. Maybe the beginning. Maybe we all do that. Maybe that main path is, maybe that main path exists simply because a bunch of people made semicircles off to the side, off at an angle, off here and there, and they all ended up back in the same place and just started clearing the brush there. Maybe, I don't know. This this analogy only goes so far. Um, uh, but I know that, that was a, that's a familiar feeling for me. The fact that I tried to hack my way and find my own words, find my own... Uh, you know, it's like I was trying to find a, uh, I don't know. It's like at the end of the day, I was under the same sky as everybody else, using the same stars as a guide. And that led me back to the main path. And it's still different. And I still like to wander off into my own weeds, because that's just how I am. I still like to wander off into the brush and hack away at things with a machete, because I simply enjoy that. You know, I, I simply enjoy hacking away a little bit at the jungle. Keeps you in shape. Keeps you in shape to hack at the hack at the weeds with your machete. It does, though. It, it, it keeps you sharp, and it keeps you from accepting things that you might not need to accept just because people tell you. And so I'm glad that I took that route. It doesn't change the fact that I took that route, but I'm glad that I took that route and made that semicircle, and I'm glad that I still have a tendency to want to go back out into the weeds, because I think that keeps you balanced. I think that keeps you, you know, definitely, it, it keeps you, it gives you perspective. And, uh, you know, going back to the idea of God, going back to whatever that is as you define it, because I'm not here to define it. 
I was saying a minute ago how it's like you don't actually need to convince anybody of anything. And if you're trying to convince somebody of anything, chances are you're veering into the world of explanation opposed to description. Chances are you have some ulterior motive, because I can't imagine any pure motive for trying to convince somebody of something. Maybe to save their life? Don't go that way because there's a cliff and you'll fall off of it and die. The things we're talking about aren't usually that literal. And I've never forcefully been able to convince anybody of anything. You know, my mom had a little post-it note she wrote before she died, and I still have it up on the fridge. And it says, anybody convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. Like, even if you're telling somebody, hey, don't go that way, there's a cliff, and you're going to fall. Oh, hey, you know, you're going to fall, you're going to fall. You know, you're going to fall, you're going to fall. You know, even if you try to tell somebody that, it's still better if they see it. And I think the best you can do is maybe convince them to walk a little bit slower or a little more carefully. You know, maybe by telling them, hey, there, there is a cliff there. First of all, you better have seen the cliff yourself if you're going to tell somebody that. If you're going to tell someone not to go in a certain direction because there's definitely 100% a cliff and you're going to fall off and die. You better be sure that you know what you're talking about. And there's a good chance they're still going to need to see it for themselves. So maybe the best you can do is just convince them to be a little more circumspect. To walk a little bit slower. To keep their eye open a little more. To be open-minded. And if you try to force them, if you try to convince them, there's a good chance they're going to fall off that cliff out of stubbornness. They're going to think, that guy was way too much. He had some. He was trying to convince me to do something for some other reason, and I don't even believe there is a cliff. So, uh, you know, that, that's something to keep in mind whenever you you think that it's your job to convince somebody. And when you start believing in something, you can become that person very easily who thinks it's your duty to convince somebody of that thing that it turns out you just discovered. It's kind of like the wannabe syndrome I've talked about before, where, you know, somebody told me once that, you know, wannabes are the people you have to worry about. And doesn't it seem that way with everything? Like, the person who's trying to convince you to believe what they believe, don't they seem like a wannabe? That person who just discovered some new political idea, and they're trying to convince you to believe it too? Don't they seem like a wannabe? Like they probably don't really believe that thing. Because if they really believed in that thing, they'd probably understand that... They'd probably understand that if it's a truly good idea, you simply knowing about it will either attract you or you will find your own way toward that idea. And to force you to follow it, 
is going to not only not change your mind, but it's probably going to make you stubbornly go in the opposite direction from where they want you to go. So I say that, you know, I just went on that tangent because I was talking about faith and all this stuff. And it's like, I have no desire to convince anybody to be faithful because I don't believe anybody could have ever convinced me of that myself. I don't believe there's a single person in this world, not my parents, not a teacher, not the manager of Racks, the manager of Arby's, not the athletic director, not my coach's boss, not the college dean, not the CEO of a company I worked for. There's nobody who could have convinced me of the things that I truly believe because I only believe them through knowledge. And in that way, they're not simply beliefs. They are something that I feel, and what I feel is what I know. Those things came to me through experience. And people have a hard time with experiences that are not reproducible. Or visible. Like if you tell someone that you've had an epiphany or a sensation, it doesn't matter how you describe it or don't describe it, you're not going to convince them of it. And it's not your job to do that. And while you should live a life that's true to you, like I'm not going to pretend to not have the beliefs I have. I'm not going to pretend that I don't have the faith I have. But I'm also going to be self-aware enough to not talk to just anybody and everybody about it. Yeah, I have this show where I can go off about it when I feel like it. When I'm not complaining about people I know for, for being mad about Zoom or whatever it is I was talking about the other night. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, I have this show that I can talk about these things. And if somebody chooses to listen to this show, well, guess what? You're going to be subjected to some potentially out there ideas, probably some ideas that are very in there. I think this show focuses more on ideas that are in there than out there. But if you listen to this show, you're potentially going to be exposed to some ideas that are uh, in there and out there. But I don't talk this way to everybody. And uh, it's important to have confidence. And if you don't have confidence... Don't search for them. Like, don't don't get on a whatever the spiritual equivalent of Tinder is. It probably exists. But just be on the lookout, and chances are you'll find them. Chances are somebody will cross your path, and they might not even agree with you. They might not even believe what you believe, but you'll find that you can talk to them about some of these things. And you know what? Even if you can't talk to them about some of these things, if you can talk to them about anything, that seems like it's good enough. If you can find people who you don't have to censor yourself around, if you can find people who are simply open-minded, you could be on complete opposite ends of, you know, whatever uh, spectrum you want to use, you know, whatever example you want to use, whatever axis of ideas you want to go with, you can, uh, they could be on whatever end of that, but if they're a truly open-minded person, you know, accept them because they'll accept you. 
And that doesn't mean they'll agree with you. And maybe the best thing you could have is somebody who will accept you but doesn't agree with you. I personally appreciate that. I personally appreciate those people who are in my life who accept me without necessarily agreeing with you. Because I don't think acceptance and agreement have to go together at all. But yeah, confidence is something that I bring up again and again on this show. And it, it, you know, in the same way that you'll only talk to certain people about certain things anyway. I mean, there's only certain people that you'll talk to maybe about a certain kind of music. Like you don't, if you know, if you have half a brain, you don't go up to just anybody and everybody and talk about everything you're interested in. Like you don't go up to a random coworker who watches American Idol every night and talk about your taste in late 80s death metal. You don't go up and just talk to them about that. And you'll meet people who do that. You know, you'll meet people who go up to just anybody and everybody and talk about anything that's on their mind. And, and you know, I don't know what that is. I don't relate to that. <laughs> you know, I'm, uh, I don't relate to people who do that. On one hand, I applaud them. It's kind of like the Alan Watts idea of, you know, without sin, there's no need for secrecy. So I applaud people who kind of operate without sin and secrecy in mind and feel like they can just go up to anybody and talk about anything they're interested in. But the reality is, is like your 50-year-old coworker who simply watches American Idol and X Factor every night probably isn't the person that you go up to and tell Hey, I I heard this late 80s Swedish death metal album. It was a demo. I heard this late 80s Swedish death metal demo and it reminded me of this other demo. You know, you don't you don't go up to them and talk like that. And you know that. And like you know you wouldn't talk like like you know if if you're into video games. If you're into video games, you don't go up to a, a random person and just say Hey, let me talk to you about this game and you know and you you just know that, but the same is true for all of these things. And it can be difficult, like like somebody who is for example a born again Christian, like somebody who wants to preach and convert. It's hard for them because they've found something that is life-changing and they think that your soul depends on it now. And that's what you see from the modern left too. Although there's a little bit, you know, and this can happen with religion as well, but you see it especially right now with the modern left, where it's not just that I've found something that will save my soul, it will save everybody's soul, and if you don't believe it right now, you're condemning everybody's souls. And therefore, if you don't agree with what I say, I'm going I'm to get you. I'm out to get you now. You know, and that's what you see from that way of thinking. So that you can see where that's an even more twisted situation than just, hey, I discovered this religion, and if you don't believe it, you might go to hell, so I'm going to preach to you about how you need to convert. You know, that's one thing, and that's bad enough. But when that becomes, oh, and if you don't convert, I'm going to ruin your reputation. And, and make sure everybody knows that you're the spawn of Satan. Because that's that modern left technique. And it's not to say that other groups don't do it. 
but uh you know I, I i see it a lot from the modern left that's what i see not to get too political here uh, and i'm not trying to save their souls you know i'm not trying to save somebody's soul who's doing that i'm not trying to i'm not trying to convince them not to do what they're doing cuz trying to convince them not to do what they're doing is to betray what i've been saying for the last 10 minutes I'm not going to try to convince them because that's not going to be effective. Telling them they're wrong and how they need to change their behavior and beliefs is exactly what they're doing to other people. So I'm not even going to play that game. I'm not even going to play that game. And I certainly wouldn't play that game with the things that inform my faith. Which at the end of the day does boil down to that Neville Goddard quote of unseen reality. Why do I need to convince somebody to have loyalty to unseen reality? Because to me, the simple fact of it is good enough. And to keep myself sane and to keep myself balanced. I don't need to go around talking about it all the time to everybody. But I'm not going to act like I don't feel that way. I'm not going to act like that isn't a part of my human experience. I'm not going to act like in being in charge of myself, in taking leadership of myself, it involves a certain amount of humility because I believe there is some sort of larger force of leadership, some sort of larger authority. That is how I operate at this point in my life. And it's important to have people you can talk to about that, if that is how you see things. And they don't have to agree with you, but it's important to have people that you can share that with. It's important to have an outlet for that. And that outlet might be a very quiet outlet. That outlet might actually be silence. That might be meditation. That, that might be, that outlet might be not much of an outlet at all. And it might just be an exercise in learning how to keep things to yourself. But you shouldn't have to keep things to yourself because of other people's judgment. So that's sort of a dilemma you have to work out. But if you can find people to talk to about these things, there's a reason why fellowship is such an attractive idea in spirituality. And while a formal fellowship is not for me, I think if you are open, you will find fellows everywhere. And the best part about finding people who will accept you but not necessarily agree with you is that you will get a lot of new ideas from them. And some of those ideas might just naturally fit into your worldview, and some of them might not. But both the ideas that fit into your current worldview and those that don't will both help inform your faith. So that's one of the important reasons to find people who are accepting, but not necessarily explicitly agreeable. Because there's a good chance you're going to learn from them. And there's a good chance that learning, that getting those little lessons 
will reinforce the things that you already know and maybe make them a little more multidimensional. You know? So, a lot of ideas here. This is a long episode. Two hours, seven minutes. I could keep going on. I could keep going on and on about this particular subject. But it's one that I, you know, I think about quite a bit, especially in the age of coronavirus. Because even though I've been bitchy lately, you know, a number of the episodes recently I think have been bitchy. I've been like, oh, this type of person does this. Or somebody I know who I'm not going to name got really defensive about Zoom when I said I didn't want to use it, you know. I've been bitchy lately on this show, but um, the reason I think I feel good overall, the reason why all of the different things that seem to test and interfere and just, uh, I don't even, I mean, we all know what I'm talking about, just the different things that go on in the world, the different interactions you have, the state of the world. I think one of the reasons why I've been able to feel generally quite good and not overconfidently good, but just generally good through all of this, I think is because these ideas stay intact for me. You know, these ideas are important to me. And they stay intact because I don't pretend like they're not there, even though I know I can't always share them even though I know not everybody wants to hear about it, because that is a sign you're crazy. In the same way that the person who goes up to a random coworker and starts talking about some obscure interest, you know, that person might be crazy. Like if you go up to somebody who has no interest whatsoever in the thing that you're interested in, and you won't shut up about that, And you become self-righteous about it and you say, like, if you're really into role-playing games and you go up to somebody and say, hey, I got the best role-playing game for you. And they say, hey, I'm really not into role-playing games. And you say, you know, if you don't play this role-playing game, you're lost. And you might, you suck. You suck if you don't play this game. You sure you don't want to play this game? Because at the end of the day, this is all a role-playing game. But it's... You know, but uh, you don't want to be that person who's telling somebody, you gotta play this role-playing game. Or you know what? If you don't play this role-playing game, you're a piece of sh. You're a piece of sh. You know, you don't want to be that person. And whatever you're saying, chances are it is as absurd as that. Oh, you don't want to go LARP with me? Oh, hey, me and my friends are going to go LARPing this weekend. I think it'd be great if you came along. Oh, no, you're not going to? You're not going to come with us? Oh, that's because you're a piece of sh. And you go into heck. And in fact, I'm going to tell everybody about you. I'm going to tell everybody what a piece of shh you are. You know, it's that absurd. Because at the end of the day, you know, no matter what you're asking somebody to do or think, you might as well just be asking them to LARP. Because that's how you're going to sound to them. And no matter how fun LARPing is... You know, if somebody doesn't want to do it, (laughs) you know, no amount of convincing is going to get them to do it. 
and chances are they're already doing it in their own way. Chances are it's not that they're opposed to LARPing. It's that they're already LARPing in some different role-playing game. They're already playing another game of their own, and you're trying to convince them to quit their game and come play your game. So why not just be confident in your game? Because if you're confident in the game that you're playing, it sounds like some like pickup artist thing, why not just be confident in your game? No, but really, if you are confident enough in your game and you share it with people who are receptive, who are accepting, even if they're not agreeable, that seems like it's the best service you could do. And if you are truly faithful, if you truly believe in the game you're playing, if you have faith in whatever it is you're LARPing as, and you do that confidently, well, you very well might reach a point where you're no longer LARPing. And that seems to be what everybody wants to be. That seems to be where everybody wants to get to in life. Seems like the ultimate goal of many people is to reach a point where you don't feel like you're LARPing anymore. <laughs> I feel like a street preacher. <laughs> don't you want to reach a point where you don't feel like you're LARPing anymore? No, but isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Like so many of us, especially in this crazy modern age where our identities have been revealed more and more, not so much for what they are, but for what they aren't. Doesn't it seem to be like what we all want is to not feel like we are playing make-believe because so many things increasingly feel that way? Well, just have some confidence in what you're doing. Have some faith in what you're doing. Don't force it. But when it comes, don't reject it either because that seems to be the biggest part of the battle for me. If you reach a point where you say to yourself, hey, I'm putting a lot of effort into holding on to these words or these terms, these placeholders, maybe it would be easier just to let go of those and just see what happens because nobody's saying you need to stick to it. I'm trying to describe this thing and it's like, it's like almost like there's this larger wholeness or universal force that acts as a guide but nonetheless delegates and allows us to act as our own guides and allows us to act as guides for other people. It's like there's this thing out there and I'm, I'm coming up with this, I'm trying to come up with this word for it. Maybe just relax for a minute and be like, maybe it is God. And if that doesn't feel right, don't stick with it. But if that suddenly feels right, hmm, you know, do you really want to just throw it away then? Because if it feels natural and it makes you feel like you're no longer LARPing, even though you have every single reason in the world to feel that way, especially in 2021. I don't know. To me, it seems like that's not something to throw away. But I think you have to meet all of that on your own terms. And that idea might not be the idea for you. But if it is, 
why throw it away? Because you very well might suddenly have an epiphany or get a sensation that you don't actually need to throw anything away. All you have to do is let go and things will just find you on their own level and your own level. And that seems to be the cure for LARPing. Is things finding you on your level and you finding things on their level. It's the cure, baby. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children 